Hello and welcome to Listen Carefully. I'm Nathan Jolly and my guest today is Jake Stone from Blue Juice. First of all, I'd like to start with company because... Cool. I, think... I don't even know what's on it. Let's... Yeah. <laughs> I'll, um... I'll get... Hold on, I'll get right, the well, vinyl. I'll tell. Uh, yeah, the vinyl came out recently, didn't it? Yeah, I got it. I got it over here. Oh, amazing! I'll take, I'll take the head of the Hawk and uh, company over on the vinyl, so I can take look at that. Right, because I literally don't listen to them. So, hello. Okay, go ahead. There they are. Yeah. They look great. Because they would have never originally came out in vinyl, would they? No. That was yeah. like. Seem like the kind of band that people would have wanted to immortalize on vinyl to you. You're lucky to <laughs> no. get a CD at that stage. I'm surprised yeah. the label didn't just burn a bunch off and go, here you go, guys. Well, I mean, we were a CD-ish band. Like, yeah. we did have, that. you know, um, the first album was definitively on CD because it had a paper cover as well. It had, like, the cover, yeah. holding cover. I've actually got that here. Oh, there sweet. I don't know. So I don't know. one of the shit covers. They're rare. Right, the yeah. That- do you know why that happened? Because the fucking band whinged about not being in it. And I was like, dickheads, it's not about whether or not you're in it. It's about whether or not the cover is arresting to look at. And they were like, we want to be in it. And I was like, fine. Yeah, well, it's funny because this- I took this from Todd's office because he had like dozens of them sitting there. Probably yeah, cause- they suck. <laughs> <laughs> they gonna- suck. They're not as good a design, but they're much more rare, which yeah. is cool. Well, so there you go. Yeah, and I fucking bought that shit. It's so annoying having to fight an argument where you come off like an egocentric dick. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like you're you're well, trying to argue for a design, but it's just you're in it. So it's like you. it sounds like you're just like, no, it's got to be me. But it's like, no, it looks terrible with you guys dressing your bowling clothes like a fucking ska band in the background. What are you fucking those guys from, you know, might as well be walking on the sun. Like, we, we, <laughs> we look up looking like, fuck, what's that band? Smash you know, the, yeah, we look like fucking Smash Mouth. Jerry's got a fucking bowling t-shirt on. Makes me want to kill myself. <laughs> well, I'm glad you erased that. I'll be walking on the sun. Gang, 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 gang. Fuck you. Um, well, let's let's start with this record then now that we're talking about oh. it. Vitriol blew up. But that was like seven years in, hey. Yeah, we were fully failed by that stage. We we'd done so much touring that we were like, we'll make a record and Stab literally just verbalized it. Stab's always the one that like decides to finish. Yeah. So Stab was like, we'll make the record and then we'll pay off the debts that because we borrowed like twenty grand off his dad to make the record. We had right. enough money, we were broke or whatever, but we just we're like, okay, we need a bit of money to make an album. We'll do that. We'll have enough gigs that we can pay it off because we're probably doing decent, like, cap. You know, like, we'd yeah. do shit guarantees elsewhere and, like, average guarantees in Sydney by comparison to a band that did well. Um, but we could still commit to about 250 people per show and promise that and get it. So You were two um, EPs in as well, hey? So Yeah, yeah. yeah. Unemployed had limited radio play and we did have a reasonable reputation. We'd supported, like, Butterfingers and tricky very badly that's when i broke my hand um and a few other bands and like we'd won competitions we won music halls and all these other you know been in different competitions yeah so there's momentum some like yeah. we were we were a well-liked one-offy live band that could play and staff's friends always turned up we had a culture of people coming 
that weren't hipsters. So it wasn't like we were, there was a period of time where we were popular and then it dropped away. It was just like our crowd from the start that just continued to build basically. Yeah. So, yeah. So we were like, all right, this is working out well enough that we can do a few shows. If the record doesn't work, then we'll um, just break up. He was like, we'll just put it out and then we'll just break up. If it doesn't get radio play, like we've been doing it enough. And I was like pretty sad about that idea. But then when I heard vitriol back i was like oh we're not we're probably not breaking up like i heard the mix back on burn cd and i was like this is going to be on the radio for sure yeah and i kind of knew it was going to be on the radio a lot as well so i was like good (laughs) and it was but it exceeded my expectations well it was on radio the most it's still the most played song on triple j ever is that the case yeah still yeah Oh, okay, there you go. So that, yeah, it exceeded my expectations because I remember hearing it twice a day at one stage and I was like, good, I need the fucking money, you know? Uh, And and also it was a unique thrill as well. Like, I mean, mostly at that stage, it wasn't about the money at all because I was very young So and I had other jobs and I'd been working. So it was kind of like, wow. You know, I shouldn't have answered like that because that's the older me answering. The younger me was like, oh, cool, like, this is exciting. People are hearing our song. And and then we played the show at um, the Gaelic Club and it was a headline and it was going to be like, once again, we'd do this and if it works, okay, cool. If it doesn't, then uh, then maybe we we break up. And then we did it and there was a, like a line around the block and I was like, this is very different. You know, there's, there's it's going to sell out. We've never done that. This is not the time to break up. Yeah, and I sort of knew... I sort of knew something that was going to be good and I also knew that we'd done the yards in terms of live performance because I had no nerves. I wasn't like, oh, no, this is we're not ready. The only time I started thinking that was once we did the big day out on the main stage and we, were, we did it as a trio and I was like, hey, we're not ready for this shit. <laughs> Two shows it's, in, I was like, we can never do this again. It's a huge stage to command as a three-piece. It's so massive and you just can't mm. – You just can't. we were doing it like a club band. Every song was like 130 BPM real fast and – you know, we're just like, ah, stop. Ah, and it's like on a big stage that just turns into like chihuahuas yelling at nothing. So you need need those big slower songs, more 120, 115 to carry out into that that expansive festival setting. And we worked that out by the time we did Act Rage. And Broken Leg was a good version of that idea because we'd already done some festival touring and we started to understand what you were needed for a festival show. But even Broken Leg was hard. Yeah, and Broken Leg, such a massive sounding song on record still. And we did do it at the trio initially. Jerry just went mental with his right hand. Jerry, if you have Jerry playing keyboards, you don't actually need a guitar player, but it's cool with the album. Because Jerry just goes, like that with his right hand on the Hammond, and it's sort of like you have a guitar. Because he'll play like three lines of keyboard. He'll play two, two primary keyboard parts and then colour with a synthesizer at the same time. And he's just, he is a bit of an animal, like he'll go at it. It's very primitive the way I'm describing what we're doing. It's really not the way a modern band would do it at all. It's hardly Fred again. Yeah, but it shouldn't be. Like you were primarily like you were a live band and you were a recording band and like it was it was a period where you make an album, tour the shit out of it, make an album. Like you kind of caught the tail end of that being how releases work. Basically we were the last bands of that period. Yeah, you totally Before were. everything went to social media, because we were, we were a MySpace band, we weren't a Facebook band. Yeah, your we first a, record has a MySpace address in it. I'm sure. Yeah, that may, yeah. that's well, good journalism from you, but that's that's for, for sure true, because we were, really didn't have 
it just was a different culture. Like when I look back at the way bands, you know, like I look at the Sticky, because I know Patty from Sticky Fingers, like I'm not taking sides here or whatever, but yeah. um, I know Patty from Sticky Fingers from having worked with him for a fair while and like seeing all the shit that they're getting into, you know, it's like, fuck, Blue Juice would have gotten into so much shit. Like we were a pretty wild band. Yeah, it was a different time there. Yeah, we didn't give a shit about any of that stuff. So, And as you said, you were pre kind of social media. So company was... 2011 yeah i guess so. so it hadn't it wasn't on like it wasn't to the point now where it's like on everyone's phones no exactly it was completely different the way you were listening to it you're primarily exposed through radio <clears throat> you know there was a broader reach for video clips like after it was youtube and radio so people would like hit the video on youtube and then you'd know your streaming numbers were good because like if you look at our streaming numbers they beat a lot of modern streaming numbers yeah, I bet. Yeah, yeah, that's true on Spotify, but they beat a lot of modern... It's not true of the serious acts now, but it's true of a lot of the acts on YouTube who would have been of comparative size because YouTube was the primary aggregator of views when we were a band. So yeah. every view that it got would clock up on YouTube because people would go from hearing it on the radio straight to YouTube. And that's how we had these singles feeding back into our live audience, feeding back into festival guarantees and more presence on Triple J and stuff like that. It was easier. It was just like, okay, you just concentrate on Triple J. They give you the green light. Then you do your own marketing on this limited social media platform, being YouTube. And then if those two click together, you have a six to 12 month period of success, you know? So that was how I planned out all the singles. And that's how I wrote for those singles was knowing that we at least had to have one that was going to do a circulation for six months and then put us in, you know, good club positions, good Australian touring festival positions, so you could play Falls, you could play Splendor, you could play uh, Big Dow, you could play those other, you know. Never play Laneway there because they thought we were a bunch of bogans and they're probably right. We should have done it once, but. Yeah, yeah, I'm surprised you didn't actually. It they was... just never, they were just like, fuck these losers. And that was what hipsters were always like when they were dealing with us. Like that's how come it took seven years without any real sort of successful support because hipster band gets supports, but we're just is considered a risk, like we're either going to sh do a shit show or be the kind of band your audience will hate, which may not necessarily be the case. You never know, but that's was the perception or we'll show you up. Yeah, I think it's the latter that was the worry. Like That's funny. I never really thought about that till lately. I just thought it was because everybody fucking hated us. No, it's because you guys were like a force. I think the thing that was good about it was that we were such a home. Well, to bring it back to the first album, it's like by the time that record came out, we had done literally hundreds of shows. I mean, we'd done shows in every possible situation. I don't think there was a band that had done more or more challenging physical shows than us. And I think I believe that to be true up and until we broke up like i know that's the kind of thing a, like a fighter's like oh i could fight anybody well with that band i'm like oh, you know we, we did so many gigs that i was like we can play with anyone we played with tam impala we didn't play after tam impala we played prior to tam impala at two pyramid rock festivals i think but um but we could do that we could support bands that were much better than us because we were as a live show very idiosyncratic and part of it was songs and then periods of improvisation and then also songs and then periods of spoken comedy style stuff where it's just we're just riffing on the crowd. It was like a really different type of live energy. Yeah, absolutely. People, they didn't expect you to be cool as long as you're getting a laugh and like you're doing what you're supposed to do and you're pouring your body into it. Then they'd like it when you finished up and started paying each other out. And like, but then it became stand up and it was a different sort of thing. So it's like it meant that you could do all this different stuff that people weren't expecting. It's kind of like a drink of water between, like it was a, reset often for the audience between different bands i just want to go back to what you were saying about like 
YouTube being such a big force. Yes. It's a shame that, like, if YouTube actually counted towards the charts as it does nowadays, Broken Leg yeah. would have been, like, number one for six weeks. If you had those repeat views that that video got, because that was, like, a proper viral video very early on. I think the thing about that band is, it, you know, it's a safe position for me to feel hard done by because <laughs> it's kind of like you're going to go, yeah, we, like, we did our actual success. Yeah, sure. Amazing. That was a massive hit. I'm not saying it wasn't. So no, 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 no. I get it. I get it. Yeah. Um, I'm agreeing. I, I can't. It, it plays into my narrative, my what I'm comfortable with. That yeah. the idea that you know we were a better band than we kind of got credit for, and I think that is partially true. And I think partially we're also kind of limited by our own understanding of things as well. Like when we went overseas, when we played in the UK, I really strongly felt on that tour actually on that when Broken Leg came out, we went over to. The UK and the US, and I really felt if we stay in the UK, we have a similar appeal to like the Kaiser Chiefs or any of these energetic sort of, um, you know, new wavy sort of bands with keyboards and stuff, uh, very physical live show, etc. And I thought they're going to get into this, like they are, like the Australians got into it. They're going to like the chaos and the stupidity of it. America didn't get it. They were like, "Are you flying to the Concords?" We should have said yes, but we were like, "No, we're kind of like a band, morons." You could have gone South by Southwest comedy. Yeah, we should have just gone. Well, we had a manager from America who managed Manchester Orchestra who was interested in us, and he took us out for sushi in LA and was like, "How about we make a TV show and we do it?" And we and I'm so fucking dumb. I just went, "No, we're you know we're a band, we're a band." Yeah, man, I should have said we're a fucking we are the thing you think we are, and <laughs> we would write this into a context that makes sense for you guys because it would have been potentially a uh, fire the concords had just happened, you know we've. It's not that different. Who cares if you're part of the Concords number two if it doesn't, if you're not shit, if it's not bad? The American office wasn't terrible. It's like you can have a good success, but. Yeah. And music comedy is very broad. Yeah. And it works. It hits audiences. And then once it does, they stay. And, and you know, you could have a really amazing career. You're not really sacrificing anything if that's actually what you do. But I just couldn't accept that that was. I was so trying to be a good songwriter that I forgot that we were just inherently fuckwits. But I'm glad yeah. you didn't do that though, because I reckon oh, one of the one of the appeals of you guys is you'll wear fluoro tracksuits and have a chaotic live show and do funny film clips. But like the music is serious and it's serious pop and it's great music. I think that is what I'm trying for. Just like I don't want to lose anything if you hear it, you know. When because people were like, "Oh, it's sort of like OK Go," and I was like, "That's fucking poison in my ear, dude." Like OK Go. Uh, average as fuck and like as as average as we are you know once again it's that fighters thing it's like you might it might be a reasonable comparison but it's not okay for me it's not though it's just funny clips that's what people are saying we're like, not as good writers that the the writing here we go here i go again or what that song is that's an okay hook every other hook i piss all over from a great height and i hate to say it but Act Your Age stomps that song. Vitriol stomps that song. Fucking Broken Legs stomps that song. And yeah, it's because they're all, they're all rip-offs of bigger songs. All of the ones that I'm writing, they're not ripped off from fucking... They're not just a song. They're modelled on other songs that are hits. So it's it's different. It's a different approach. Like, it's because I couldn't get those various songs out of my head. So I had to kind of rip them off, you know? <laughs> That's a good way to write. Yeah, it works. It's just like I can't fucking stop thinking about Bubba O'Reilly. Ding, 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 ding. So I write Broken Leg. I can't stop thinking about Shout to the Top by Style Council. So I write Accurate. You know, Vitriol was probably the least. That's, that's what happens if you leave me to my own devices. I'm going to copy something. But not knowingly, just kind of it's 
part it's just in my head and it's in my hands at some point if i'm rehearsing it if you let jerry write it and the band write it and then i just add lyrics which is probably how you get the best outcome which is probably vitriol then it's like okay ned liked block party jerry made a keyboard hook that was the best part of the song and then i tried to destroy it multiple times by telling him to change it because i thought it was too happy or <laughs> more quickly on vitriol yeah i want to talk about left boy i found that oh yeah it's crazy amazing. So what happened there? Just this Austrian guy just jacked the beat and rapped on it. <laughs> yeah, he just straight up stole it. And then we found it and we were like, <laughs> hey, what the fuck? And then our publisher was like, oi. And then, I don't know, I feel like I've gotten not that many royalties from that hit. <laughs> I feel like I should have a few more. But, you know. That left boy money. Yeah, I want that, I want that German rapper money. <laughs> but it, well, it's a good song. Like, I like what he did with it. It's well produced. Like, they've done some... Some other thing, yeah. Yeah, it's got a drum machine on it and it's a bit more breakbeat and it's cool. Like, I, I get why he did it. I mean, it's a, it is a world-class riff that Jerry wrote. That's why it's so funny to me that, because it's one of those riffs that should have always existed, but but it only exists in, it's strange, it's like it should have been in millions of songs because it's really <laughs> annoying, but it's actually just in our song and that Left Boy song. So as far as I know, anyway. <laughs> but um, but it's pretty, it's pretty irritating. I, I remember thinking when we were writing that song, Oh, I've got to write something cool and attitude-y. Jerry's letting it down with this major key bullshit. Sounds like aqua. <laughs> and then I tried to write some serious stuff and it was terrible. And then I was like, I'm so depressed. I've got to write a happy verse. Let me try and write a happy verse to this happy thing. And then I did for once in my life write a verse that was upbeat and positive and then <laughs> connected with it. <laughs> and I was like, shit. It's positive, but it's still called vitriol. Yeah, no, exactly, because I'm not a nice person. So you sort of have to, <laughs> you've got to take your bitterness and to alchemize it into gold. That's that song's whole intention. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great message. There's a lot of that kind of I see that self prescription in a lot of your songwriting. I think you doing it for to get yourself out of an awful mood almost every time. You yeah. never in a good place. At your age, I was happy, but um, at your age was written. The hook was written in New York in a Airbnb with um, on a trip with my ex. That wasn't the worst trip in the world to New York, um, and so I actually was really excited. And I remember just thinking, "Cool, I got a piano in the fucking Airbnb, and I'm in New in Brooklyn. I'm cool." You know, when you're twenty yeah. something, you're just a douchebag, and you kind of think that being but in that New stuff York is maybe, romantic. Though. It works works for twenty year olds because that's yeah. what they think. Everybody does kind of think. You, I actually hate New York now, which is my other song and company. But um, I had so many bad trips in New York that I ended up just having an absolutely awful time there three times and I was like, fuck this city. But um, that that particular trip was actually enjoyable and, you know, we were having a nice time. So um, the song came out without too much noir or fucking angst. But um, the other two, Broken Leg was like the worst because we the same person that I was with at that time, we'd broken up for that period of time and I broke my leg and I was turned my sleep cycle around completely. So I was getting up at 6 p.m. and going to bed at 6 a.m. And I was like on painkillers all the time as well. And I just remember just being like, and I couldn't work or do anything. And I was just like, what the fuck is going on in my life? And, and then I, it took so little time to write that song. It was like a minute. It was less time to write than it takes to sing. But you had to live it. You had, to, <laughs> you had to go through the... Yeah, and you had to think, oh, yeah, you, you have to think, I'm a worm, everybody um, is hates me, and also uh, I have to follow up vitriol because I was just like, I have to follow up vitriol. If I don't, we are okay, go, we're fucked. We need to get more songs because I could feel the way... The industry was always like, 
these guys are sort of a joke. And so they just try and push you into that category at every possible opportunity. It didn't matter. Whether, it's actually worse once you started getting opportunities because then they'd sort of resent you for it as well. So they'd be like, how do we limit their career even more? Yeah. And, uh, and so you're like, all right, well, we need to hit them with the right hand. If Vitriol's a nice stiff jab, I need to like come through with the right and finish them, you know, and that was the intention of, of Broken League. And it did set everybody on, on their heels a little and it gave us a chart success that what we weren't supposed to have. So it's like that, that worked. It was a huge single, number five on the hottest 100. Yeah, and like, people forget all of that. They go, yeah. you know, five and 11, if you're a band that gets five and 11 now, you're an international success story and absolutely everybody knows who you are. And yeah, absolutely. in the time that we had it, it was like, it was domestically really big, but, you know, it's a generational change now. So there's 20-year-olds who've never heard any Blue Juice or don't care. And that's fine. Like, it's, of course, that's going to happen. You know, it's a band from the 80s to them almost. But the records are they're out there like if there's any kind of generation that switches so quickly like that's nostalgia that's 2011 your final record yeah they might they might you know i mean streaming numbers have been good and they've been trying to um incentivize it by by making the vinyl and you know by having us do some social media around it to some degree and um and streaming numbers are surprisingly good i mean i maintain that if we were a band now i mean we would be a lot more wealthy, you know. I think that that's part of it. I'm not going to do that classically bitter band guy thing where it's like, fucking didn't make the money. Like, I'm fine. But my point is, it's a different story. Like, you see, and and I'll give you that. Sticky Fingers are a much better band. Sticky Fingers have a lot. But or let's, if I say that, then it classes us with them and they, they're generally thought poorly of at the moment. But, but I see similarities in that they're a live band. We come from an Annandale pub tradition both of us literally working at the annandale patty and i um and them coming from that background we were more of an annandale hopeton band sort of yeah no i get what you mean think about it they're playing to fucking ten thousand people a night in fucking holland and you know london i mean i see this controversy around them and it's just funny to me because it's like it was seven years ago and have you seen the pics on patty's social media they don't need to come back for blues fest they're doing fine like they're, they're, in fact, if anything, you know, I'm not, I'm not undercutting what's been said because I've had weird experiences with Dylan as well to some degree, you know, and I'm not justifying the guy's behaviour or whatever and he's, this, he's who he is and, you know, as long as he doesn't stab me, I'm cool with it. You know, I think it's just a bunch of people with egos arguing, jostling for position within the music industry and attaching a lot of identity politics to it. And I think he really is quite unstable and probably has a pretty unstable family background. And he might be a bit of a fucking cock, you know, whatever. Paddy's not that much. Like, I, I enjoy Paddy's company. He's never done anything bad to me. So I can't hate him. But, uh, but one thing I will say is that the success that they've had as that groundswell act in Australia has translated overseas and in a significant way. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's the same with a lot of those acts that are big now, Triple J big, like Gang of Youth. Yeah, they just go over too. Yeah. We could have done that too. You know, I missed that part of my life and because I am a touring animal. Like once it gets started and rolling, that's where I live. Now my body probably couldn't do it, but, <clears throat> but I, you know, like that's what I'm best at. So it does feel like I never got to really stretch my legs properly, um, but it's cool. Like that's, we got the big festival gigs and we, you know, we did what we were doing. We did what we were supposed to do for the time that we were doing it. But you guys were insanely successful at the time. Like you played all the festivals, you had singles. Yeah. 
our managers decided to make us a festival band. So they just went, we can make money out of this. Right. Basically. They're like, we don't know how else to make money out of these fucking morons, but if every festival says yes, we can fucking run them through festivals for the next five years until everyone's sick of them. And uh, that's what they did. And that's right. okay because we knew that that was going to be what we were saying yes to. And, you know, we were already in our mid-30s, early 30s. So we were like, that's what we'll do. We'll get festival guarantees, have a bunch of great experiences playing these big stages, and then eventually, inevitably, people will want to move on. But I think your music changed so much between like from the first album to the second and then second to the third like you guys traverse a lot of ground we weren't even getting started like truly like i wasn't getting started i was only just coming into my own as a songwriter you know and and it's it's such the big waste for me is that alex burnett and people like that who are very clever have gone to create songwriting careers for themselves and that's really what i should presently be doing is commercial songwriting with people because i'm quite good but uh, I just am so all over the place and, and it's so difficult for me to organise myself in, in a business way and people don't kind of... Alex is different. Alex is very um, business. Like he knows how to make the music business work for him, whereas I'm more of an artist than I am a co-writer. And he co-wrote Act Your Age and Shock with you, right? Yeah, that's right. And he also wrote um, I'll Go Crazy with me. And his method of co-writing is wonderful. He also wrote Thelma Plum's... Um, Back in Black with uh back yeah with her whatever it's called um was it called Better in Black, um and the singles off that record as far as I know I may have no matter I've written Better in Black he may have, but I definitely wrote the lead single off that record. All right, fact check it. Yes, please, thank you. Um, but he he writes everyone. I mean, he's he's been consistently co-writing. I think he'd had a digitalism song in like 2012 after writing with us, and then he he works with Blue May and Blue May also recorded. Um, uh, SOS for us in England and there's a fun fact the band isn't on that song <laughs> oh really yeah it's uh, it's session place because I was in England staying at Alex's place over there and Todd was like we need a single now and I was like well I've got this song for the other band because I had like a band with my sister called the breakup band that had a bunch of good singles lying around and there still are like three really good songs in that band that were recorded um, that never came out and SOS was one of them. It just kind of sounded like Actor Edge with that pedaling riff. And so yeah. we were like, let's record it. The band didn't really mind. Like they, uh, Stav flew his vocals over. So we recorded the bed track, sent it back to Sydney. Stav recorded his vocal, then he sent it back. And then I did a track for harmonies on top of what he had sung. Um, and the choir on that, and largely the band, is Amy Winehouse's band, believe it or not. Her piano player, her bass player, and one of her singers... And the, sing- the female singer in the chorus is Norma Vula Malinga, who si- sings a song with um, Basement Jacks. Not Good Luck, but something of that era. So there you go. There you go. That's amazing. Yeah, that's what happens when you record overseas. You, fucking, that's, you meet all these people. There's all these different people in sessions that are like, you know, one time I was in a session in New York on that same trip and MDNR just walked in and I was like, Shit. <laughs> it was terrifying. And I was recording with J-Lo's vocal producer. It was so weird. That is weird. Oh, and the other thing that's cool about that was that that was also in the studio where the strokes recorded Is This It? And it was tiny. It was so small. And I kind of felt like it was going to be the place because I had the booking at the Lower East Side. So I got off the subway and then walked over to the apartment and there was like a stroke sticker on the door as you went in. Wow. It's just kind of like where they would probably have recorded something like this. So I went down into the studio and it was like a basement studio with one 
one room that could be reconfigured in a few different ways with baffles, but there's essentially a live drum room. But then you swap out and record guitars in there because there's just fucking no room. And then the control room was like separated. It was like a little booth that was separated at the back. And uh, and then I talked to the guy and he's like, yeah, this is where. <laughs> I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah, it doesn't yeah. surprise me that they had like shitty little shoebox studio for that record. It doesn't even sound very good when you turn it up really loud. It's like it's iconic, but the recording quality is not like incredible. It doesn't sound no. amazing. It sounds very, you know, distorted and intense. I want to ask you about Aspen, New York. Is it true that that was a song that you literally dreamed, like yep. McCartney with yesterday? Literally. Like yeah. it was exactly as he describes it. I got everything about the song from about 15 seconds of like lucid dreaming when I was waking up upstairs. So I was like in my parents' old, or the, the up upstairs of my house here, my parents had their, their room and it used to be separated off. And then, then they moved out of that room and that became my room for some reason for a period of time. And so I was like sleeping up there and I kind of like woke up. Uh, sorry, before I, was, before I woke up, I imagined I was watching television in the bed and the tel- on television there was a new Kooks video and it was black and white but it had like graffiti, like kind of fluorescent pink and green graffiti over it, like someone had animated over it. And, um, and it was a new song by theirs and it was that, by them, and it was that riff and it said Aspen, New York, which, did, which made sense to me in the dream. I was like, yeah. that, yeah, Aspen, New York, that made sense. And then I woke up and I remembered the, and I went, fuck, that was a dream. Fuck, that melody was so good. And I ran downstairs to the piano and went, it was literally this long. That was what I had with the changes. And I was like, that fucking actually works. And then I, then I was like, take a holiday, blah, 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 something, something, Aspen, New York. And then the words kind of came out. And, yeah, I was like, holy shit, that was easy. <laughs> the yeah. good ones are very easy, generally. I, I love that song. It never really got any attention, but it was a fun song. It should have been a single. Probably, and it probably should have been very carefully produced. I haven't actually listened to it. I haven't listened to a lot of these songs in a long time. But um, the production's great on that whole record. Okay. Well, Eric yeah. J did it. Which is cool, right? Yeah, he's great. He's amazing, and look, he's not. He's a pro- at the time he was less of a producer than a mix engineer, and I think he and but but Todd had a good instinct that he was going to do very well, and he'd just arrived in Australia, so and because he'd worked on the Weezer Red record, and we had previously worked with Chris Shaw, who'd worked on the Weezer Blue record, yeah. we were like we're kind of Weezery. Um, we just keep seeming to work with people who are working on Weezer shit, like nerdy white people, and so. <laughs> Uh, we we did that and it was a good fit, but it was a challenge because I'm very meddlesome in the production process and sometimes I'm right and sometimes I'm wrong, but I'm fucking involved either way. And when it came down to getting the production for Act Your Age, because I'd written with Alex and we'd actually extensively demoed it and demoed it using very specific pieces of gear. We demoed it using an Oberheim DX as a drum machine, which is a, a classic partner to the Lindrum of the 80s. Lindrum's the probably best-known drum machine of the 80s. Oberheim's the other one. Um, and it's got a beautiful sound. And Phoenix famously used it for everything on um, on Wolfgang Amadeus Phoenix. They'd, a lot of those sample live live drum takes that have a sound replacement samples so for the kicks there and hats. Um, so we did the same technique. But it didn't work as well with Eric because the band were too involved and it needed the singular vision of Alex and I, generally speaking, 
when Alex and I write together, Alex is an absolute dictator. He will not take no for an answer and he's cold. I mean, he's, it's like working with a motherfucking, it's like working with Adolf Hitler in a good way. Like Kanye West said, uh, don't worry, I'm Jewish, I'm allowed to say this. You are, yeah. He, he would just be like, no, you know what I mean? He'll be like, that sucks. No, that person cannot play this or whatever. Like he'll just be like, that's not. And Jamie was like, no, fuck you, I'm playing everything. Jamie, our bass player, was like, I'm, I'm doing it. And, and Jerry, I think Luke is part, but who the fuck knows what happened in the studio because I had to boot Eric off that song, not that I wanted to. And Eric did a wonderful job of everything else, but we just couldn't get the song was too fast. It didn't. You know, when you know a song is a single, you have to get every aspect of it right and you cannot compromise. Like you must, the song can't fight for itself. You have to be its champion. And it means you have to fire people. It's horrible. You get, you, it's like arguing for yourself on the cover. It's like, I don't want to do this. I want to compromise and make everyone happy, but I can't because when I compromise, it sucks, you know? And so certain songs, if the band wrote it, then the band should... The band should do it, you know, because the band will know best. And with Broken Leg, you've got Jerry, you've got me singing a part at Jerry, and then Jerry going, yeah, I get it, I get it, bah, 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 yeah, yeah, cool, how about this, dun, 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 and you're like, oh, perfect. And then it works. That's a band song. You can record that live. But Act Your Age was a song where I was writing piano, and then we put the drum machine to it, and once that those two parts were together and looped, it was undeniably that thing. And it had to be that tempo, which was fairly fast, and it had to have this pre-recorded loopy piano thing and had to have the Oberheim. There's just no negotiating it, which meant that we needed to work out a creative way to back engineer the live music onto it. So Jamie then played in very specifically what Blue and Alex wanted out of the baseline, which made sense for us anyway, because I think he was sort of doing what he would have done. Yeah. The keyboard part was very, very nailed down by the time it went in and the drums were played by a live drummer, but were sound replaced with, with, and then they took it. It was so uncomfortable. They took it from the studio where Eric and us were. I went, look, we, we have to give it to them. We need it. It's our single. We have to get it right. So they just took it to the studio fucking, it was at BJB, and they just took it next door to the main room. And we're right. sitting in the other room working on album tracks, and then I'm going over, going over into the other room talking to Alex and Blue, who are making, you know, who aren't that polite about it, let's say, sure. either to everyone else. They're cool with me, but, like, they're, you know, they're, like, kind of can't you know then they're they're not they don't give a fuck like they're they're like yeah yeah we're doing the single of course we are we're good and you're like yeah and so then you're recording the vocal on that and then going back and apologizing to eric who's a very good person you know yeah and it's you're just in this fucking nightmare situation but it's like what can you do you just you need it you need to it's it there was no other song Shock could have jumped up there, but I got lazy with Shock and didn't write a second verse properly, and that's my fuck up, right? But, but Act Your Age was always the song, and it's like that has to get uh, – I'll die. I'll lose friends over this, like whatever. You know, it's fine. It has to come out as it is. It can't – you can't fuck around with songs like that. If you do that, you, you're going to regret it for the rest of your life. So, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you, and I think it's great that you fought for that because it's a hill worth dying on, you know. It is, but the problem was is that Eric, Eric was so – good to work with so giving with his time and so enthusiastic that and such a good person someone i really respect on every level um that it made that con he he took it like a fucking champ but he's such a I professional didn't he churn through all those idle things where he ended up or x factor or whatever it was played yeah. on, where he ended up producing an insane amount of singles i think he was doing it at the time i think he was consistently working on five things 
I mean, we had BJB booked out for long periods of time where he was the primary producer, so he was working with us all the time. But then he'd go home and work through the night, you know. Yeah, insane. So he's just he's an animal. But he's but the thing that I'll say about Eric J is like as a producer, very good. As a mix engineer, ridiculous. Like you know. Yeah. Right. And I think that's not even a controversial or even particularly interesting thing to say because he's won Grammys as a mix engineer. So. <laughs> I reckon off that company record. So there's cheap tricks, the recession, yep. can't keep up. Act your age on my own. You haven't changed. Like there's eight potential singles on that thing. I'm glad you think that. Anyway, I- I've ranted at you about this before, but it just should have been a massive album and it just kind of stalled in a really annoying way. There's a couple of reasons. One, the domestic market is small. So when you have two hits, then there's a bit of shrinkage after that. And, you know, Act Your Age is a better song or arguably a more accessible song. It's certainly aged better and it has the biggest streaming uh, of all the singles. But unfortunately, it's like Australia, you have a third album, now you're old news unless you're breaking elsewhere. If you yes, break yes. elsewhere, they're, they're reinvigorated, you know, but if you, if you don't, then you end up being pseudo old news to people and they start mechanically trying. Like Australia's really vicious. Like, maybe every audience is very vicious, but Australians are very parochial and they, they start taking out their weird shit on you. Like, you, you get big and then they're like, that's what I mean about Sticky Fingers. Like, I've got a degree of sympathy for those guys because it's like, yeah, uh, they're successful overseas and they don't need you. So now you're trying to wolf mother them. Like, you're trying to fucking go, well, these guys suck and always did. And it's like, they don't suck. And, and then if you can't say they suck, it's like, oh, these guys are a bunch of rapist homophobes. And you're like, just shut up. Just go to see a band or don't. You know? Like, you don't have to like the guy. But the thing is, you can't charge him with a bunch of moral crimes that no one's putting him in handcuffs for. They put him in handcuffs, okay, then he's a fucking criminal. If he's a prick, there's a lot of pricks in the world and you are going to be on the same bills with them. Or you can choose to go on another bill and set an example and be this Melbourne loser who sets up a cool Melbourne thing that's, you know, and that's what these bands are doing. And, and respect to them, they can do what they want and they can make the value decisions that, and judgments that they want. That's the game now. That's how people play it. But for us, it was like we hit our third album and then we started getting kind of like, oh, Blue Juice. But, like, it wasn't really like that because everyone would definitely still come see us. But I knew Actor Age would not hit the same spot on the Hottest 100 because it just you just can't unless you go over and become Flume. Then Australians are like, oh, my God, I'll just take my panties off because, like, you're Flume now. And it's like... What did it get? 20? 20, that's right. 20, is it? Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's still amazing. But that's the thing. It just shows you. It's like you can't deny it even if you want to. You get hipster yeah. stage and you go, I'm not going to do that. It's on Triple M or it's on fucking Osteria now. So fuck these guys. But it's like they still voted. So, you know, go fuck yourselves, basically. Like have everyone. You... Yeah. Oh, sorry. I was going to say, have you and Stav spoken about any like reformation chat? Or no. Is it way, he, he way past that point. There's no way he'll do it. There's, it's, it. People don't understand how definitively he doesn't want to do that. Yeah. Like, he doesn't care about that at all. He's in a completely different stage of his life. You know, he would sing, and I'm sure he'd enjoy singing. He still sings, and he sings very, very well. But, uh, A, my ankles are jacked, and, you know, I could – the show would be ve- would be much more cautious physically I because I can't – I have really bad arthritis in my ankles, so I just – I can't do the things that I used to do. I'd still train martial arts and do a lot of crazy shit, but it's like it's how my body would hold up over the nights of – brutal assault that those shows actually were no one understands what that sh- those shows did to my body like they have no idea well you need to do the neil young thing and do the acoustic record where you just sit down and 
I'd be happy to perform at, perform at my ability level, you know, and I'm sure it'd still be fine. Like, yeah. I don't think it'd be a problem. I'd just fucking get high or drunk or eat anti-inflammatories um, and just get through it. But, and I'm sure we'd be fine. You know what? If it was the original band or if it was, yeah, probably you'd only do it if, if it was Jerry included because there'd be no point. Otherwise, although Alex was very good and did a good job of Jerry's parts and Alex would probably, I think it at all, everyone would get along. Like, it wouldn't be an issue. We'd be the same. We had dinner the other night after um, Eamon, our lighting guy, passed away, unfortunately. And so we had it at his funeral. And then um, we got some of his his stuff. He had this beautiful um, big uh, thing that we'd given him at the end of the last tour. So we we ha- um, took some of his uh, his things. <laughs> and um, But, I mean, no one else was going to. And, you know, no, that's great that you've got that. Yeah. And he was so, like, he was so in the band. It was such a big part of the band. That's the other thing. I don't know. Like, there's the opportunity to change and grow, or you just don't fuck with it. And it's like I don't want to kind of do it unless it was genuinely exciting. Like, if you found that it was two shows in, people weren't really they were more excited in the PR lead up than they were to actually go. Or you got on stage and you did it, and it felt like half an hour of fucking filler. Or you just felt you weren't you were too old and it was hard. Then I would be sad about that yeah i know what you mean it would kind of stain the legacy a bit that's why i'm glad that we never did that three records it's a great like it's it's a good discography yeah it's just sort of like we, this is this was us and we're not going to keep trying to like we should make more money out of it we should go and entertain people we should see if there's people who care but realistically it's just a bit past when they would there might have been a really good spot for that maybe three years ago now i think it's just kind of like a new generation and you just let people do what they do and and um you know i'm i'm quite excited to make other music and even though it will probably not be as successful it'd be great if it was but uh realistically that's not i I don't know that's not how the music industry really works ever but um you know i'm djing a lot and my friend lachlan who's an old friend of mine from high school is quite a good dj and he was like oh we should get together and do a duo dj thing we've done it before and it was pretty fun so i was like yeah fuck it I, you can get old in electronic music no one gives a fuck so you have to be old to succeed in electronic i think old and ugly so <laughs> that's what i'm aiming for and then just other shit. i do shit with dan you know been writing songs the songs are really good that's the only yeah, annoying part the embankment is that what the is that the dan? yeah yeah they've shown me some of those songs and they're great yeah they work all right i mean they're not whatever blue juice was was very specifically itself so that's what made it popular was the thing that made it unlikely to succeed initially this is actually what turned it into a success so it's weird all the awkward things about it were the things that made it marketable yeah i think you guys are very similar to regurgitator in terms of the success yeah Yeah. oh totally i mean regurgitator are probably one of the best australian bands to emulate because they managed to do everything without losing respect for, from the audience. So they could change genre. They could, you know, use keyboards or guitars. They, they were always a party band. They always had that particular personality. And they always, it was like they were the Beastie Boys sort of, but not as popular. Or what, you know what I mean? Like that yeah, kind I know of what you thing. mean. They were the Beastie Boys, but they were also like synth pop 80s band. Yeah. Yeah, you're right, though. They're a good band to try to emulate in terms of how they just didn't put a foot wrong. And it's not pretentious either. So it's sort of like it gets like the problem with the bands that that we were sort of paired with. And thus, I was glad to think did better than um, like Red Riders and Dappled Cities. We did better commercially, not necessarily creatively, but commercially. 
Yeah, that was just a time and place thing, right? You guys were just all playing the Hopeton and the Annandale at the same time. Yeah. And all of those bands were emulating like Pavement or they were emulating, you know, um, The Strokes or they were emulating these bands that were cool and were serious. And But the problem was is that like it lent it a degree of pretension. And in Australia, it's very hard to look. You're either going to hit it with a pretentious band or you're going to fucking fail super hard. Like no one's going to care. Yeah, it was that period where everyone was suddenly into the gang of four. It's just like, really? You're all just... Yeah, exactly. You're all like this now, do you? Yeah. Yeah, lies. You don't go home and listen to it. And and if you do, it's like fucking limited, you know? It's like what you're listening to is pretty specific and it's not... (laughs) It's kind of... It's deliberate. It's a deliberate... I mean, for me, I was always thinking it was the strokes because that was the most commercial evocation of what was going on. But it was hipster nightclub music and we couldn't do that because we weren't... Even when we got together, it just was a jam. We didn't, there's no deliberate, every time I tried to make it something, that sucked. Like, as I said, like, I tried to talk Jerry out of the riff in vitriol. So we would just work cross purposes at ourselves if we actually got the chance to do what we wanted to do. And I think some of the problem with me was that I got too much into the songwriting and thus a lot of what you're saying is on company. You know, I wrote. Yeah, no, I know. I should have actually had the reins off a little and half of that record should have been Stav and, and whatever Stav came up with. Because Stav came up with Cheap Tricks, that's a really fun song, you know? And um, Kind of Evil's a fun song. There's, like, there's all this opportunity that I could have spent encouraging Stav to write and writing riffs because with Cheap Tricks I wrote the piano riff for that part and then that Stav's vocal melody. Yeah. That would have worked great. We could, I could have spent half that record just going into studio with Sav and just writing piano for him, you know, and that, that's what a nice supportive person would have done. But because I was so focused on trying to keep the momentum of the band going, I was a bit blindsided to some of the more kind of collaborative aspects of how you should write by that but stage. That, that also makes for a more even album if you're kind it does, of and I it. Kind of that idea. And, you're right. Yeah, and I think that's one of the strengths of it. And it's also one of the kind of, as you are saying, you wanted to move away from perception of you guys as just being kind of a jammy party band because by that stage you weren't yeah we had a bit more sophistication in terms of our ability to deliver songs that were stage worthy but also singable and uh, that's my, my focus was to to try and dress the band in a conservative way like in a quality way but in a kind of more linear way so that we didn't have these kind of records that were like farts in a duffel bag just like craziness everywhere you know like a shot, like the single was a shot, everything else was a series of musical farts. And like, that's what the first album is. The first album's so all over the place, and that's the charm of it. But that's a debut album thing to do. Like. You know that better than I do, but I don't. I, I was just like, holy shit, this is just what's happening. I didn't know that that was it. <laughs> I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah. It wasn't I Ain't Telling the Truth, the first song that you kind of wrote yes. with a kind of sitting down yes. to write it. Yeah. And the funny thing about that was is I sat down and wrote what I think are the chords that are in that song, but when I had to show the band, I forgot what I'd written and Ned was, and it was such pressure because it was the first time I was allowed to sit at the keyboard. Jerry was like, you cannot write on the keyboard. That's my fucking job. And I was like, come on, man, I've got fucking songs. And so he was like, fine. And Ned was like, fine. So then they're like, go, play it. And I was like, um. Staring you down. Yeah, and I didn't know what I was doing. So I made it up on the spot and that's the chords that are in the song. And then Ned, at the end of it, went, Rick, did you write that? And I was like, actually, just now. <laughs> I was like, 
I was like, yes, not only did I write that, I literally wrote it then because I was scared. And that's happened to me before too. Um, that, the first song I ever wrote on piano, I was trying to show someone I was seeing very early on when I was about 19. And she was like, yeah, show me. And I sat down and tried to play what I'd written and my hands fell into a different, fell into an A, a major. What, lost your way, panicked. <laughs> yeah, and fucking wrote a better song. Which that, you know. Right. So let's see, there you go, that happens. Drillers make killers. And that was Jake Stone from Blue Juice. And for a list of all the songs and albums and artists and producers and studios and 80s drum machines we spoke about, go to listencarefully.com.au. And why not give me a five-star rating wherever you listen to this podcast if you enjoyed it. My guest next week is Jane Gazzo. Until then... Thank you.